0: Greetings once again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host as we work our way through these sermons that were preached and published by Charles Spurgeon during the course of his lifetime and afterwards, sermons which show the the God-given grace and gift that the man had for the holding up and the holding out of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we appreciate him. That's why we're reading him. This week, we've broken into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 19, reading from Sermon 1088 to 1094, and it is 1094, which is our featured sermon for this week. So each week, we choose one particular sermon, which we think is representative of Spurgeon's output, uh, and uh, we're up to 160 or so of those sermons so far if you've been listening along and that representative sermon is the subject of these weekly podcasts. Always and for all things is the sermon. Ephesians 5 verse 20 is the text. Always and for all things the text giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sermon was preached on the Lord's Day morning of the 2nd of February, 1873, and the weather wasn't very good, as you'll discover. Spurgeon, as he tends to, is careful about where the text comes and what the text means. Again, he can sometimes then uh, take a, an interesting route from or with the text, uh, but he's very conscious of where to find it in the Bible, and he makes clear in his introduction that this text comes following the precept with regard to sacred song so the apostles touched upon the act of singing in public worship and now points out the essential part of it which lies not in classic music and thrilling harmonies but in the melody of the heart thanksgiving he says is the soul of all acceptable singing and then not only what the precept follows but what it precedes the Apostles' exhortations to believers concerning the common duties of ordinary life. And he points out then that if we're going to serve God, we must begin by praising God, for a grateful heart is the mainspring of obedience. As soldiers march to music, so while we walk in the paths of righteousness, we should keep step to the notes of thanksgiving. Larks sing as they mount. So should we magnify the Lord for his mercies while we are winging our way to heaven? And now a note about the weather. My text is a very appropriate one for this cold morning when wind and snow conspire against our comfort. Let it peep up like the golden cup of the crocus out of the wintry waste. When the weather is unusually dull and dreary, we should resolve to set a stout heart against the pelting storm and determine that if we shiver in body, we will at least be warm in heart. Our thanksgiving is not a swallow which is gone with the summer. The birds within our bosom sing all the year round, and on such a morning as this their song is doubly welcome. The fire of gratitude will help to warm us, heap on the big logs of loving memories. No cold shall freeze the genial current of soul. Our praise shall flow on when brooks and rivers abound in chains of ice. Let us see which among us can best rejoice in the Lord in ill weathers. Really see uh, something of Spurgeon's background there, something of his love of nature. He's a countryman at heart, it seems, and he uses these lovely images of the crocus, uh, that uh, little precursor of spring shooting up out of the, the snowy or icy ground, and then the the swallow gone in the summer. Our Thanksgiving is not like that but the birds within our hearts sing all the year round. This lovely, uh, almost casual, natural imagery that he uses, and then the very homely illustration of heaping big logs of loving memories on the fire of gratitude. So for Spurgeon, this is a pleasant duty that is prescribed. That will be his first point. Then he wants us to think of its spiritual prerequisites, what we need in our souls in order to be thanksgivers. Then he wants us to dwell upon the eminent excellencies of the duty or the privilege which is here described. And again, the the balance of this sermon may not be perfect in terms of the proportion of those points, but Spurgeon's natural skill, his uh, characteristic verve helps to carry us along. First then he says, think of the pleasant duty both prescribed and described in this text. Think what it is, giving thanks. We have sometimes been so overcome by the devout emotion of gratitude to God for his mercy that we could not help but weep. And strange it is that the same sluices which furnish vent for our sorrows also supply a channel for the overflow of our joys. We may weep to God's praise if we feel it to be most natural. This is a man then for whom this emotion of gratitude and the expression of it is is something that that hits him very very deep in his soul to go about irksome and laborious duty cheerfully is to thank god to bear sickness and pain patiently because it's according to god's will is to thank god to sympathize with suffering saints for love of jesus is to bless god and to love the cause of god and to defend it for christ's sake is to thank god His point is that there are many ways in which the obedient heart can discover the most acceptable method of giving thanks. Why, if we gave our God a thousand lives and could spend each one of these in a perpetual martyrdom, it were a small return for what God has bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. But to give him thanks is the least we can do. And shall we be slack in that, he asks? He presses on, the work of thanksgiving does not belong to the man of large utterance, for he who can hardly put two words together can give thanks, nor is it confined to the man of large possessions, for the woman who had but two mites which make a farthing gave substantial thanks. The smoking flax may give thanks that it's not quenched, and the bruised reed may give thanks that it's not broken. Even the dumb may give thanks, their countenance can smile a psalm, and the dying can give thanks, their placid brow beaming forth a hymn. It's, uh, again, really rooted in, in reality and rooted also in the reality of God's word. Spurgeon knows how to put a finger in the text, a finger in the world, and to make sure that we're, we're seeing what he sees through these eyes that have been opened to the truth as it is in Jesus. So that's the what, the giving thanks. But he also wants us to see the when. Uh, For the pith of the precept, he says, lies very much in the two alls in the text, always for all things. We are then to give thanks always. When the fig tree blossoms and the fruit is in the vines, when the labor of the olive fails not and the fields yield abundance of meat, then it is but natural to give thanks. When health enjoys life and wealth adorns it, who will not say, I thank God? But what about when we're under different circumstances? Well, someone might say, well, we can't always be praising God with our lips. Spurgeon's already acknowledged that vocal thanksgiving is not essential. Perhaps the most doubtful form of praising God is that which is performed by the tongue, he says, and the most sure and truthful way of giving thanks is that which is found in the actions of common life. But we are to be always praising God under some shape or other. The heart is always to be full of gratitude. At all times of the day at all times of life we should give thanks. In youth we should praise God for godly parents and early grace. In our midlife we should give thanks for strength, for household joys and experience of the divine loving kindness. And certainly in those maturer days when the head like the golden grain bows down with ripeness, the aged saint should commence the employment of heaven and should be always giving thanks. Now he acknowledges it's easy for him to stand in the pulpit and speak to them in that way, but He confesses, I have not always found it easy to practice the duty and I confess it to my shame. When suffering extreme pain some time ago, a brother in Christ said to me, Have you thanked God for this? Can you imagine being told that? I think some of us would say that's bordering on the abuse. But a brother in Christ came to Spurgeon and asked him, Have you thanked God for this? I replied that I desired to be patient and would be thankful to recover. Ah, but, said he, In everything give thanks, not after it is over, but while you're still in it. And perhaps when you are enabled to give thanks for the severe pain, it will cease. And Spurgeon says, I believe that there was much force in that good advice. Can I then perhaps ask you, whatever circumstances you're in as you listen to this podcast, have you thanked God for what he has bestowed upon you? It may be that when you're enabled to give thanks for your present circumstances, if there is suffering in it, it will cease, for the lesson will be well learned. It is to praise God rightly, to, to bless him in the dead of night, to bless him with bleeding back, to bless him with feet in the stocks, like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Oh, then to feel that nothing in this life and nothing in death shall make us cease to bless the Lord while thought and being last, this is grace indeed. So we've had the what, giving thanks, the when, always, now we come on to the wherefore or the why, giving thanks always for all things unto God, for all things. Dear friends, a Christian has infinite cause for gratitude. You can look down and give thanks because you're saved from hell. You can look to the right hand and give thanks, because you're enriched with gracious gifts. You can look on the left hand and give thanks, shielded from deadly ills. You can look above you and give thanks, for heaven awaits you. And then there are these minor and temporary benefits for which we ought to give thanks. There ought not to be brought into the house a loaf of bread without thanksgiving, nor should we cast a coal upon the fire without gratitude. We eat like dogs if we sit down to our meals without devoutly blessing God. We live like serpents if we never rise to devout recognition of the Lord's kindness. We ought not to put on our garments without adoring God or take them off to rest in our beds without praising Him. Each breath of air should inspire us with thanks and the blood in our veins should circulate gratitude throughout our system. Oh, how sacred would our temporal mercies be to us if we were always thanking God for them. Instead of that, says Spurgeon, we too often complain because we have not somewhat more. The worst of all, he goes on, is that sometimes the poorest are the most thankful. Those dear souls that are always sick and never have a waking moment free from pain are often the happiest and most grateful, While persons with wealth, health and strength and surrounded by every comfort are often of such a crooked disposition that they complain they know not why and are most disagreeable companions. God save you who are his saints from ever falling into a murmuring spirit. It is clean contrary to what God can approve of. Give thanks always for all things. Whenever the salt is put on the table, let us see in it a lesson to us to season our conversation with thanks, of which salt we cannot use too much. So you're giving thanks for your eternal benefits, for your temporal benefits? What about the mercies which you don't see, says Spurgeon, as well as those which are evident? We receive, perhaps, ten times as many mercies which escape our notice as those which we observe, "'mercies which fly by night on soft wings "'and bless us while we sleep. "'You've heard, perhaps, of a Puritan who met his son, "'each one of them travelling some ten or twelve miles "'to meet the other, and the son said to his father, "'Father, I'm thankful to God for a very remarkable providence "'which I've had on my journey here. "'My horse has stumbled three times with me, "'and yet I am unhurt.' "'The Puritan replied, "'My dear son, I have to thank God "'for an equally remarkable providence on my way to you.' for my horse did not once stumble all the way. If we happen to be in an accident by railway, we feel so grateful that our limbs are not broken. But should we not be thankful when there's no accident? Is not that the better thing of the two? If you were to fall into poverty and someone were to restore you to your former position in trade, you would be very grateful. Should you not be grateful that you've not fallen into poverty? Bless God then for his unknown, or maybe we should say overlooked, benefits extol him for favours which you do not see or recognise, always giving thanks to God for all things. So you've had your eternal blessings, your temporal blessings, your unseen or unknown blessings. What about the bitter things, says Spurgeon, the disguised blessings, the love tokens which come to us from God in black envelopes. Uh, Those are typically used to announce bad news in Spurgeon's day for the benefits which travel to us by way of the cross, which are generally the most heavily laden wagons that ever come from our Father's country. We are to give thanks for the dark things, the cutting things, the things which plague and vex us and disquiet our spirits, for these are among the all things for which we ought to praise and bless God. Augustine tells us that the early saints, when they met each other, would never separate without saying, Deo gratias. thanks be to God. Frequently their conversation would be about the persecutions which raged against them, but they finished that conversation with Deo gratias. Sometimes they had to tell of dear brothers devoured by the beasts in the amphitheater, but even then they said, Deo gratias. Frequently they mourned the uprise of heresy, but this did not make them rob the Lord of his Deo gratias so should it be with us all the day long. The motto of the Christian should be Deo Gratius, giving thanks always for all things. But that text has another word which is important. To whom is this gratitude to be rendered? It is to God the Father. To man we are bound to render thanks in proportion as he benefits us. God does not require that in order to be un- to be grateful to him, we should be ungrateful to our fellow men. To keep the first table, he means the first table of the law, it is never needful to break the second. Gratitude to parents and friends is but gratitude to God, if it be properly rendered with a view to the highest benefactor. To neglect the lower would be to spoil the higher gratitude. Yet we should never end with gratitude to men. That were to thank the clouds for rain, instead of blessing the Lord who sends both clouds and showers. Remember that if you have benefactors, God inclined their hearts towards you. Give thanks to God, for he is good and he does good. Give thanks to God. Let not your gratitude stop short of the source from which the streams of mercy come. And so, remember, he says, especially the relationship that you have to God as your Father that as the Father, here is the Creator, it is He that made us and not we ourselves. As the Father, He is the sustainer and preserver of men. As the Father, He has elected His people, for it is the Father who has chosen His people in Christ Jesus, and, as the Father, He is the progenitor of the spiritual seed, for He has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Think of God the Father in those various capacities and you will have so many reasons for giving thanks always under him. If you're a preacher, you've almost got a sermon right there, haven't you? Uh, Giving thanks for all things to God the Father. What is it about God as Father that promotes thanksgiving in his children? God as creator, God as sustainer and preserver, God as elector, God as the, the chooser of his people. The father as the the progenitor of the spiritual seed the, the the regenerator think of god the father in those various capacities and you'll have so many reasons for giving thanks always under him never give thanks then says spurgeon to the lord jesus christ in such a way as to dishonor the father such careful trinitarian awareness you owe much to jesus But Jesus did not make the Father gracious to you, since the Father himself loves you. Jesus is the gift of his Father's love and not the cause of it. So what he means is, don't thank Jesus for making the Father love you. Don't thank Jesus as if the Father would not have loved you without the Lord Christ's work. Bless the Father and give honour and praise unto him who has made us meet, be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And then there's one final element to this. The text tells us how to give thanks. And again, you've, you've got this real grounding in the word of God here that's so helpful. You can work through this text and see where Spurgeon's getting his material, where he's coming from and why he's moving on. That it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we give thanks. He wants us to ask, How would Jesus have given thanks? How would he have praised God? In what sort of spirit would the ever adorable son, whose meat and drink it was to serve his father, have praised God? So after that fashion, and in that same way, you are to give thanks unto God and the Father. The day he will come, he he points out, when we shall fulfill our text in the widest sense, in the day when we see the downfall of all wickedness, the overcoming of all sin and the exaltation of all righteousness. The fact that we're not there yet means that we may not be able to give thanks in the fullest sense now. Our eye sees the gigantic evil and does not see the overruling good which, like a boundless sea, rolls over all. The dreadful mysteries of evil make us tremble as we think of them. But the day may come when, with the Lord Jesus, we may not only bless God for electing love, but may even say, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. The day may come when even the darkest side of the divine decrees and the profoundest depths of the divine action shall cause us to adore with gratitude, and when even that which can least be understood in providence shall no longer be the subject of awestruck wonder, but of unspeakable delight. We shall trace the line of perfection along the course of the divine decrees and workings, and though the way of the Lord may have seemed to us to be inscrutable, We shall then adore Him for that wondrous display of all His attributes—His justice, His love, His truth, His faithfulness, His omnipotence—which shall blaze forth with tenfold splendor. In heaven, we shall give thanks under God always for all things, without exception, and throughout eternity, we shall magnify His holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us do it as best we can today. God's Spirit helping us. That's the conclusion to Spurgeon's first point, which is the pleasant duty prescribed and described. Think what it is, giving thanks. Think when we're to do it, always. Think why we do it, for all things. Think to whom we give it, to God as Father. And think how we give thanks, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, says Spurgeon, and again, you've got the the typical now condensation of material when uh, one earlier point is expanded and developed in the preaching. Now he really packs in the material in his second points. Briefly, let me speak to you upon the spiritual prerequisites necessary for the performance of this very pleasant work. In other words, what needs to have happened in our hearts for us to give thanks always in all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first you'll need a new heart. The old heart is an ungrateful one, and even if a man should try with an unrenewed nature to give thanks to God, it would be like the impossible supposition of the dead struggling to make themselves alive, which cannot be. The old heart is a putrid fountain. It cannot send forth sweet streams. It is opposed to God, and it cannot bless him in a way that he can accept. And next, I would remind you that in order to perform this duty aright, says Spurgeon, a man must have a sense of God. To give thanks to God aright, a man must believe that there is a God. He must go further than that. He must feel that God is the author of the good things which he receives. And to give thanks always, he must advance yet further and believe that even in seeming evil, love is at work. So he challenges us. Answer the question. Is God as real to you as your wife or child, as real as yourself? He must be so and you must know him to be ever present with you or else you will never continue praising him. Then you'll need a sense of complete reconciliation to God, of closeness to him. This we shall be sure of, whoever it may be, if he be reconciled to God by the death of God's dear son, he will give thanks to God indeed and of a truth. If nobody else does so, he will from this day forward sing, I will praise thee every day, now thine anger's turned away, comfortable thoughts arise from the bleeding sacrifice. Then you'll not give thanks to God through Christ, except you've accepted the mediator. All the thanks commanded in the text are to come up to God through Jesus Christ. So if we reject him, or if we associate him as mediator with somebody else, we have gone contrary to God's way, and we cannot praise God. Virgins and saints and martyrs must never be made rivals to Jesus. Then to praise God, even the Father, doesn't it strike you that we must feel the spirit of adoption? Who could praise a person as Father whom he does not recognize as Father? And then to the fullest performance of this duty, there must be a subordination of ourselves to the will of God. We must not desire to have our own way, We must be content to say, not my will, but yours be done. I cannot give thanks to God always for all things, says Spurgeon, till my old self is put down. While self rules the hungry horse leeches in the heart, and that is fatal to gratitude. Self and discontent are mother and child. That's a lovely little proverbial statement, isn't it? Self and discontent are mother and child and child. It just makes you stop and, and think and ponder what's going on in your own soul. Then, says Spurgeon, I only want your attention a few minutes more while I speak upon the eminent excellencies of continually giving thanks to God, even the Father. And there again is that lovely naturalness as a preacher. He's aware of himself, aware of his surroundings, aware of his congregation. Uh, aware of the influence of the Holy Spirit upon him. He knows that he's taken up quite a lot of time looking at the duty of thanksgiving. He's therefore condensed the second point and he knows that the people might be thinking, oh, we've you know covered quite a lot of territory so far and this is only the third point. And so he just gives them that little encouragement, that little assurance. It's not going to be long now, just a few minutes more while I speak upon the eminent excellencies of continually giving thanks to God, even the Father. The first excellency then of this duty and privilege is that thanksgiving honors God. A thankful spirit glorifies the Most High. Whosoever offers praise glorifies me, says the Lord. We might have imagined that whether we grumbled or complained it would make no difference to God. It would be of no consequence to any one of us what might be the opinion of a little community of ants about us. But God is infinitely more superior to us than we are to emmits. Uh, emits there means these uh, transient life forms that the smallest elements yet he considers that our praising and blessing him renders glory to his name so let us render it to him then without stint without holding back there is no higher commendation for any course of action or for any virtue to a christian man than to tell him that it will honor god will it dishonor god he will shrink from it though mines of gold should tempt him will it honour God, the believer rushes forward to it through f- though floods and flames lie in his way. Then obedience to our text will check us from sin. That is, it will hold us back from sin. Giving thanks always for all things. Very well, Sir Spurgeon. Then there are some places that we must not enter for it would be blasphemous to be giving thanks there. There are some things which I must not do for I could not give God thanks for them. Suppose I've ground down the poor. Can I give thanks to God for that? Suppose I get my living by an evil trade. Suppose every day my prosperity brings misery to others. To give thanks for the fruit of sin, says Spurgeon, were practically to blaspheme the thrice-holy God. Oh no, if the Christian is always to give thanks, he must always be where he can give thanks. And if he's to give God thanks for all things, he must not touch that which he cannot give God thanks for. The logic is tight. I cannot grasp the fruit of covetousness, the gain of dishonesty, the profit of Sabbath-breaking, the result of oppression. If I do, I have that for which I may weep and howl before God, but certainly not that for which I can give him thanks. Then again, one of the truest excellencies of a spirit of perpetual thanksgiving is that it calms us when we're glad and it cheers us when we're sorrowful. This, says Spurgeon, is a double benefit. It allays or or takes away the feverish heat at the same time that it mitigates or takes the edge off the rigorous cold. If a man be rich and God has given him a thankful spirit, he cannot be too rich. If he will give thanks to God, he may be worth millions and they will never hurt him. And, on the other hand, if a man has learned to give thanks to God and he becomes poor, he cannot be too poor, he will be able to bear up under the severest penury. The rich man should learn to find God in all things. The poor man should learn to find all things in God. And there is not much difference when you come to the bottom of these two causes. One child of God will be as grateful and as happy, as blessed and as rejoicing as another if he be but satisfied still to give God thanks. So, when you enter this spirit, it's not in the power of the enemy to injure the man of God when self is dethroned and the heart has learned to be resigned to the will of God. It's when we're nothing that we're everything, when we're weak that we are strong, when we've utterly become annihilated as to self and God is all in all, it's then that we are filled with all the fullness of God. May the Holy Ghost conduct us into this spirit of perpetual thankfulness. Then, One thing I'm sure of, that the more we have of this, the more useful we shall assuredly become. Nothing has had a greater effect upon the minds of thoughtless men than the continued thankfulness of true Christians. There are sick beds which have been more fruitful in conversions than pulpits. Why? Because women confined to their chambers 20 years have shown a remarkable cheerfulness of spirit which has been the talk of the entire district. And that's a testimony. What is this, they ask, which enables the Christian to give thanks always to God? Beloved, says Spurgeon, our crusty tempers and sour faces will never be evangelists. They may become messengers of Satan, but they will never become helpers of the gospel. To labor to make other people happy is one of the grand things a Christian should always try to do. In little things, we ought not to be everlastingly worrying, fidgeting, finding little difficulties and spying out faults in others. I believe that to a faulty man, everybody is faulty. But there are better people in the world than you have dreamed of, sir, and when you are better, you will find them out. If you were always grateful to God, you would thank him that people are as good as they are. If you would be thankful when you meet even with bad people, thankful that they're not worse than they are, and try to get hold of the best points in them and not their worst points, you'd be much more likely to gain your purpose if your purpose is to glorify God by doing them good. If you want to catch flies, try honey. They'll be more readily caught with that than with vinegar, at least if they're human flies. But into your speech, love rather than bitterness, and you will prevail. There are times, acknowledges Spurgeon, when you must speak with all the sternness of an Elias or Elijah. There are proper seasons when there must be no holding back of the most terrible truth, but for all that, let the general current of your life, the natural outflow of your entire being, be a thankfulness to God which makes you loving towards men. I am sure in this way, when you come to speak of Jesus, you will get a more attentive ear. And when you tell your experience, you will recommend the gospel by your own conversation. Beloved, the Lord give us ever more a thankful spirit, he's beginning to conclude. And when we talk to each other, let it not be our habit, as it is ordinarily with Englishmen, to complain of this and of that, but let us thank God and testify of his goodness. Let me tell you, Englishmen haven't changed much since Spurgeon was preaching. I have heard that farmers are greatly given to grumbling. Well, if they are more apt at complaining than tradespeople are, they're very far gone in it. For generally, wherever I go, I hear that trade is bad. It always has been ever since I've been in London, and commerce has been constantly going to ruin. I have known some who've lost money every month, and yet they're richer every year. How is this? Had we not better change our way of talking, and dwell not upon our miseries but upon our mercies? Let us speak much of what God has given rather than of that which he is in love withheld from us, blessing him rather than speaking ill of our neighbours or complaining of our circumstances. And as we often say, when Spurgeon is, is in this mode and directing his material primarily toward those who are in Christ, he'll never finish without a word for the unbeliever, saying here, you can't do this, until you've got new hearts and right spirits reconciled to God by Christ. This then is the whole gospel. Believe, trust and live. For whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever trusts in Christ shall be saved. Come to the altar where his blood was spilt. Come now and lay your hands upon its horn. You can but perish there. Nay, I must correct myself. You cannot perish there. You must perish anywhere else. Come then. And rest in Jesus and the Lord bless you for his dear name's sake. And then, uh, I'm adding a little bit to Spurgeon if you'll forgive me. And then, then you'll begin to give God thanks for the greatest, sweetest, highest, purest, brightest and best of all his wonderful blessings. Friends, let's go away from a sermon like this, determined no longer to be complainers, whingers, moaners but rather giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ and doing it always and for all things. I hope you'll join me in seeking to do that and I hope you'll join me again next time if the Lord spares us as we come to sermon 1097 for our next featured sermon, Good Cause for Great Zeal. In the meantime, you can follow us on X at Reading Spurgeon. You can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts together with other material. You can leave us a review uh, on your podcast app if you'd like to do that. But uh, whatever it may be, may you go your way even now with a heart renewed to give thanks to your God and Father. Thank you for listening. And I trust that you'll be blessed in days to come.